I've entitled today's message The Downward Path. The Downward Path, because we're considering uh, what it was that Jesus had to do to become such a wonderful Saviour as we have just sung. Let's pray. Father, as we have sung the words of that hymn of Jesus, the man of sorrows, we've been reminded of something of what he was prepared to go through on behalf of sinners such as ourselves. Help us as we consider this in, uh, in greater depth to be moved even more and more gladly sing and say hallelujah. What a saviour. Jesus' name. Amen. Australian law says that voting is compulsory. So if you're an Australian citizen and over a certain age and registered, you must cast a vote whenever we have a federal or a state election. And uh, politics is very often in the news, and of course with our, our hung parliament, in the, in the federal sphere, then you know who knows how long it will be before we have to vote again. But uh, whether it's a long way away or, or comes up more more quickly than we expect, doesn't matter. Voting is compulsory. Voting is compulsory. And in that passage, and we're looking especially at the Philippians chapter two, verses five to eight. And I would encourage you to have your Bibles open at that. In this passage, uh, Paul, the apostle, is really saying not that voting is compulsory, but he is saying humility is compulsory. For the Christian, humility is compulsory. And if you're a Christian citizen, to carry the imagery on, then you must develop and you must demonstrate humility, and so must I. And, of course, not just once every three years, which is when we vote, but on a continual and a daily basis. And in Philippians chapter 2, the first four verses, uh, the apostle has listed reason upon reason as to why humility should be the hallmark of the Christian. He talks about the, the encouragement of being united with Christ, of the comfort of his love, of the fellowship of the Spirit, of his tenderness and compassion, he talks about being like-minded and having the same love and being one in spirit, in purpose. He talks about avoiding selfishness and conceit. He talks about considering others better than ourselves and looking out for the interests of others as well as our own. So for all of those reasons, Christians should be humble. But it is, it's as if he's almost saying, look, if... That's not enough to convince you of the necessity of humility. Then here's the clincher. Here's the clincher. Verse 5. Your attitude, your attitude of humility, that is, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And in these next three verses, he sets forth the scope of Christ's humility. And I thought on a good Friday, what better time to think of the scope of the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and so Paul, as it were, he starts at the top and works his way down. And so I want to ask you to consider with me the height from which Jesus descended 
but then also the depth to which Jesus descended, the height from which Jesus descended and the depth to which Jesus descended. Let's consider in verse 6, first of all, the height from which Jesus descended. What does it say? Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. I wonder if any of you have watched or have found interesting uh, a TV series, I think it was called Undercover Boss, uh, where the boss, uh, well, he goes undercover. He goes and uh, gets a job in his own firm and uh, he tries to find out what things are like for the ordinary workers. And that's quite an impressive thing. And aren't we impressed? Always, whenever a person of some importance uh, forgets, as it were, his position and lowers himself to our level. Uh, it's no accident, I, I believe, that when Queen Elizabeth goes on, uh, uh, on the, uh, the walking amongst the, the hoi polloi, then that's a very popular thing to do. Everybody wants to shake the Queen's hand. Everybody wants to shake Prince William's hand and so on. Did any of you do that? In the last, whenever he was here, you didn't. Oh, well, you lost a golden opportunity. But that was very popular, wasn't it? When he came here, uh, and here it is. He's a prince, but here he is in little old Kerrang in, in north central Victoria. We like that sort of thing. Uh, I don't know, I'm sure, looking around at you, I'm sure some of you like me, uh, like Gilbert and Sullivan. Do I get a positive response to that, Gilbert and Sullivan shows? I hope so. If you know any Gilbert and Sullivan, then uh, you would be familiar with the fact that many of, of the storylines in, in his little operettas, uh, they have these mixing up of, of course they're English, so they have the mixing up of the, of the classes, the upper and the lower classes. In HMS Pinafore, for instance, uh, the ship's captain uh, is actually Ralph or Rafe Rackstraw, who's a, who's a lowly ranked sailor, but things have got mixed up. And so uh, the real captain is just going around as an ordinary sailor. And the actual captain, the one who's got the position, is someone else again. But as a common sailor, Ralph cannot expect to be allowed to marry the captain's daughter. I mean, he's down here, he's a common sailor, and the captain is up there, it's just a no-no. But of course, when it's revealed that Ralph is not really a, a, just an ordinary seaman, but he is in fact should be the captain, then of course, no problems. They can get married straight away because love levels ranks and so they can go on. Mark Twain wrote a, a story called The Prince and the Pauper, the same sort of thing where someone of position uh, lowers himself to uh, uh, being someone else. But you know, and there are many others perhaps you could think of, those pale into insignificance when we consider the height from which Jesus descended. Christ Jesus being in very nature God. You cannot get any higher than God. Everything we can say about God is true about Jesus. Is God infinite, eternal and unchangeable in his being? So is Jesus. 
Is God infinite, eternal and unchangeable in his, his, his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his truth and his goodness? So is Jesus. The name given to the study of the nature or the makeup or the form of living creatures is morphology. And the word morphology comes from the word used here in, in the Greek, which is morphe. And the morphe, the form, the very nature of plants as animals is that which it is essential for them to have in their makeup to be classed as such. Now, this word can also be used in relation to humans. So uh, we ask the question, what, what is the morphe? What, what's the, the, pardon me from going to Greek to, to Latin, the sine qua non? Uh, what's the, the thing without which, or to forget all that fancy wording, what's the bottom line needed to be truly human? What is it that makes us truly human? Something you can't be without. And here it is used in relation to Jesus himself, not, not as human, but as God. And if you've got an NIV study Bible, it puts it well. It says, to say that Jesus is in very nature God is to say that Jesus has the sum of those qualities which make God specifically God. Anything that God must have in himself to be God, Jesus has that quality. And any lesser view of Jesus is an insult to him and it's untrue to the Bible's teachings. He's not just a special man. He's not the greatest of the angels. Jesus is the eternal son of God. And the remainder of this uh, verse here drives that home, doesn't it? Jesus did not consider equality with God Something to be grasped. Now, when you grasp something, it may be something that you want to hold on to and not let go. Something you already have. Or it can be something that you haven't got and you want to get it and hold on to it. And where it says here, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, uh, it certainly means the former, something that God, Jesus already had, but it could, in a sense, involve the latter as well. Something that Jesus was prepared to forego for a certain time and then to receive back at a later time. But whatever it is, Jesus, as we know, was prepared, because it says did not consider, Jesus was prepared to put aside that which was his and receive it back at another time. Now from a human point of view, can you, can you imagine that? Let me ask you, would you trade in riches for poverty? Would you trade in health for sickness? Would you trade in pleasure for pain? Would you trade in well-being for suffering? Would you trade in life for death? And yet that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. That's the height from which Jesus descended. He who was rich for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. That should be mind-blowing. Is it? Is it? 
the depths, the depths to which Jesus descended. And uh, there's so many steps in this descent that uh, I've divided into two parts. Verse 7, first of all, says uh, that Jesus made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So verse 7, there are actually three downward steps, aren't there? First of all, Jesus made himself nothing. Secondly, Jesus took the very nature of a servant. And thirdly, Jesus was made in human likeness. One commentator uh, let his imagination do a bit of work and he creatively imagined this scene in heaven. He says, There are rumours flying around heaven uh, amongst the angels that Jesus is planning a trip to earth. And knowing... The angels, knowing how great and how glorious Jesus is, they're talking amongst themselves about the impact that this visit of Jesus will have on the people on earth. And, you know, what will those earthlings do when Jesus appears on the scene? How will they cope with his glory and majesty? They'll immediately bow down and worship him, won't they? What else could they do? Well, we know who he is, and that's what we do. Well, how wrong they would have been, wouldn't they? Jesus came into his own and he wasn't recognised. Jesus made himself nothing. The one who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one who, by whom all things were created, things in heaven and on earth and under the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, the one who is before all things and in whom all things consist and hold together, he made himself nothing. And he received a nothing welcome, didn't he? Jesus made himself nothing. Secondly, Jesus took the very nature of a servant. And here we have that phrase, very nature, again. Just as saying that the very nature of God means that Jesus was truly God, saying that he took the very nature of a servant means that he became truly man. And indeed, as the lowest of men, a servant or a bond servant or a slave. Isn't that what Jesus himself said? He did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus took the very nature of a servant. And thirdly, in this verse, Jesus was made in human likeness. John, in his gospel, says the word became flesh and lived or dwelt among us. So that you see, when people saw Jesus walking along the street, they saw a man. And no one ever suggested that Jesus wasn't really a man. And so when we said that Jesus was the sum of all those qualities that make God specifically God, we can also say Jesus was the sum of those qualities that make a human being truly a human being. Specifically a human being. But in doing all this, Jesus continued to be what he had all, always been. Jesus didn't stop being God. The chieftain didn't stop being chieftain because he took off his robes of office. 
But Jesus also became what he had not been before. There was a time in history when Jesus became a man. And if we realise the great gap there is between the creator and the creature, then we can begin to understand the depth to which Jesus descended. And we've only begun. But even in just beginning, that should be mind-blowing. But is it? Is it? Well, it's not the end of it, is it? Because we've got verse 8 to consider. Because it shows us the further depths to which Jesus descended. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus was, first of all here we're told, found in appearance as a man. And again, that simply means that if you'd been walking along the street and Jesus had come in the other way, you would have recognised him as a human being. Does not mean that he only pretended. We may think, because it uses the word appearance, that he had, only had the appearance of being a man. But that's not what it means at all. He, he wasn't just pretending to be a man. He was genuinely a man, both inwardly and outwardly, completely. And yet, this is the Lord of the universe. Jesus was found in appearance as a man. And secondly, in this verse, Jesus humbled himself. Hasn't he already humbled himself? Oh, yes, he has. But here, he humbled himself. Even as a man, he humbled himself. Look at the way he was tempted. He was tempted in every way, just as we are. Look at the way he suffered. When insults were hurled at him, he did not retaliate. Look at the way he was disappointed. Remember, he, he came to Jerusalem. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have longed to gather your children together, but you were not willing. And Isaiah anticipated it in that wonderful passage you read. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. And all of that was because Jesus humbled himself. Jesus became obedient unto death. Didn't just go around and, and, and cop insults, although he did that, but he became obedient to death. You, you might think that, that the temptations, the sufferings, the rejections were sufficient proof of Jesus' humility. But he descended even further. He became obedient to death. Now, for us uh, ordinary human beings, death is a fact of life, isn't it? For Jesus, the God-man, being obedient to death was an act of obedience. An act of obedience. And just as he deliberately chose to become a man, so Jesus deliberately chose to die. Jesus became obedient to death, but the downward path, you see, still hasn't finished because it was death on a cross, death on a cross. Jesus' death was not a nice, peaceful, pain-free, relatives and friends gathered around the bedside 
sort of death. Not at all. Death by crucifixion was at the top of the list of excruciating, drawn out, agonizingly painful ways of dying. But you know, for Jesus, there was an even worse pain. As the bearer of human sin, he was forsaken by God the Father. Can't you hear it in his cry? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All the accumulated weight of human sin and guilt laid upon Jesus. You know, I've only really very briefly touched upon the height from which Jesus descended and the depth to which he descended. The New Living Translation puts it like this. He says, though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. Brethren, if that doesn't blow our minds, nothing will. But does it? Does it? In these three verses, we've encountered some of the deepest truths of Christianity, haven't we? And yet, it's almost an anticlimax as to what we as Christians are called to do in the light of those truths. Because the setting seems remarkable. The setting of what Paul has put before us about Jesus is all to do with our attitude. It's all to do with us being humble the NIV study bible again he puts it like this in spite of all that is unique and radically different about the person and work of Christ Christians are to have his attitude of self-sacrificing humility and love for others another commentator puts it this way If the Saviour could give up heaven's glory to become a lowly man and suffer the ultimate humiliation of death by crucifixion because of God's compassion for mankind, surely we who claim to be Christians can manifest the same attitude toward each other. Think of it all again. Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born. And that in poor circumstances. It consisted in his being subject to God's law, in undergoing the miseries of this life, undergoing the wrath of God and the curse of death on the cross, in being buried and in continuing under the power of death for a time. Whenever you celebrate the Lord's Supper, that's what you are reminding yourself of. If Jesus did all that for you, If you claim to be one of his followers, then your attitude, my attitude, our attitude to others others of his followers needs to be the same, doesn't it? Today is Good Friday, so I know I'm stopping halfway through. We don't serve and worship a dead saviour. He's a living saviour. But he underwent death 
so that he might again rise from the dead having paid the penalty for sin and so that we might rise with him. But for today, let's contemplate Christ and him crucified. Consider him, as that poem said, uh, who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Let's consider him and let's be resolved uh, to know Christ crucified and risen uh, in the days that lie ahead. There's the challenge, isn't it? What a challenge. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we recognise the wonders of your love and of the love of the Lord Jesus in the great humility that he's demonstrated. It's an enormous challenge to us, but we pray that that same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead on the third day will also live within us so that we might uh, respond to this call. Bless us each one, we pray in Jesus' name.